Hello, hello. This is Catherine from the future with a few announcements before this episode starts. So, first and foremost, technically after this episode is supposed to be The Wanderer, but I'm going to mess up the order slightly because if you haven't been paying attention to this, the new Dune movie is out, which is very exciting. We at this podcast love Dune. So, this month, as opposed to putting an episode out every other week, in honor of Dune, I'm going to be putting out an episode every week for the next four weeks. So, there's going to be an episode on Dune Book 1, Dune Book 2. There's going to be an episode on the David Lynch's Dune, Denny Villeneuve's Dune Part 1. And then I'm going to do an episode on Part 2, which is going to be awesome. So, after that, I will return to my schedule of every other week and returning to The Wanderer, but I mean, you gotta celebrate when your favorite sci-fi books become movies. Even if I'm not sure I love the movie, it's still exciting. Also, you may notice in this episode that Natalie beats me at the cocktail competition and she talks about doing a Twilight episode sometime in the future. Obviously, that episode has already been released. The reason why I did them in backwards order is because I thought that Twilight was just such a good Valentine's Day episode that I didn't want to miss the opportunity. But yeah, I hope you guys have fun listening to my episode on PlayStation. I'm Catherine. And I'm Natalie. And this is... Cosmos in the Cosmos! Okay, so this is my friend Natalie, and this is her first time as a guest. So she's going to tell you a little bit about herself. As Catherine said, my name is Natalie, and I am a history and poli-sci student. Historically, I actually haven't really been that into sci-fi. When I was young, I obviously read kind of sci-fi dystopian stuff like Hunger Games, but largely my interest in sci-fi has been more in video games or movies. Like what movies? Oh, you're putting me on the spot. Well, I did just recently watch Alien, as you know. But you didn't like Alien. I liked Crimes of the Future, the David Cronenberg film, and that's definitely very dystopian sci-fi. What's that? It was like the weird body horror movie with Viggo Mortensen, like crouching in a corner and Kristen Stewart. Lovely. When I think of weird body horror, I just think of men. Have you seen that? No, but it sounds pretty disturbing, so probably will not. Yeah, it's about all of these men that give birth in disturbing parts of their body of little men. That does sound like body horror. Yeah, the, like, in, the point of Crimes of the Future is like these people in the future start growing these new organs as part of their mm-hmm. evolution. And then this one guy has him, like himself operated on in the public in a weird, like almost sexual gratification way. Very disturbing, very weird. But David Cronenberg is a Canadian director, so I tried to see it. I thought it was interesting. <laughs> I'll say that. I was kind of happy when it ended. And it was also the first movie I saw with a new friend of mine, so it was very awkward. Okay. Anyways, do you want to do your cocktail first, or should I? Let's do your cocktail first. 
Okay, so my cocktail is called the Chatham Artillery Punch. It's basically just many types of alcohol. It has bourbon, it has brandy, it has rum, it has sparkling wine, it has lemon juice. It is just literally all of the types of alcohol. And the reason why I chose it is this is a historically relevant cocktail to the Civil War. So the story about the Chatham Artillery Punch is, do you, uh, have you heard the story about Sherman and his march to the sea? Yes. Yeah. Natalie knows history, so it doesn't make sense. But anyways, so when he reached Savannah, Georgia, the story goes that they were like, ah, we don't want him to destroy our city. Like he's been destroying all the other places. So let's like show him a good time. And they made and brought him out this cocktail and he liked it and therefore spared the city. Probably apocryphal, but a fun story. Okay, I fully do not, I do not fully remember the name of my cocktail, full disclosure. Do you? I can find it. I know it's a punch. Yes, it is a punch. And the reason I chose it is because when I think of punch, well, growing up, I liked high C punch. Okay, it's a rum punch. I liked high C punch growing up, as most young children do, (laughs) since it was sweet. And I looked at the recipe, and that was the closest thing that I imagined that an adult punch would be, since it is composed largely of a lot of sugar and juices and a little bit of alcohol. Yeah, Natalie's is a lot less alcoholic than mine. Yeah, yours is definitely a lot more boozy. (laughs) Yeah, and... (laughs) Yeah, I can see that um, punch would be something you'd imagine people (laughs) drinking in the Civil War. Yeah, I look. the reason that I suggested punch for this for today's purposes is because I believe it is one of the oldest known cocktails because cocktails are more Mm -hmm. of a recent invention. Well, yeah, because the thing about a punch is obviously we have recipes for punches now, but the great thing about a punch is it's like, you know, I followed a recipe, but I could have just dumped a bunch of juices and rum into a glass and given you a rum punch and that would have been fine, right? So it's like, it's very easy to make whether or not you know what you're doing. And people in the 1860s definitely did not really care about, ah, yes, it's very important that I have exactly half an ounce of all these ingredients, you know? Oh, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Unless they were very wealthy. Yeah. So shall we compare the two drinks? Yeah, well, what did you like better? I actually think I liked Europe's better because I'm going to be honest, I really do like wine and I get the nice (laughs) undertones of the white wine in it. Even though mine's definitely sweeter, yours is definitely more savory. I don't know, but under rum, hmm. under punch criteria, what do we think? I don't know. I like I like mine, but it's actually very difficult. I do like mine. I actually kind of like yours more, though. So that raises a question of, hmm, I guess we do actually potentially have a tester here. Well, I think that if we're going purely on punch criteria, I think the one I chose is more purely punch, but I think I like yours more as a standalone cocktail. cocktail. Should we have our our tiebreaker come in? Yeah, so um, we also have one of our other friends, Julian, here. Like, completely coincidentally, I've never actually had a moment on a podcast before where I've disagreed with people, but uh, we're summoning him. What? (laughs) Julian is going to come over, so... Natalie and I disagree on which one is better. So you have to try them and be our tiebreaker. Moment of deliberation, moment of truth. The first one in the flute glass, the rum punch. It has a nice sort of smoky sweet aftertaste, a little like cane sugar-esque, but a little, with a little smoke. 
However, it's not heavy enough on the spirits. And the second one, it has a nice sparkle in your mouth. Feels like uh, electricity. But the taste is, I, I don't feel as though it's a, a, as balanced. Which one is your choice then? The first one. Yeah, that was my thought too. Okay, well, so Natalie, since me and Julian both agree that yours is better, you've won. Do you know what that means? I get to pick the book, right? The you get to pick. Yeah, so at the end of this season, we're going to do um, sci-fi books from the 60s that didn't win, and you get to choose one to make me read. Exciting. Okay, I'll get back to you about that. <laughs> you mean you don't have one ready prepared? Not off the top of my head, if I'm being honest. <laughs> no one ever does, so. How many winners do you usually have? Well, um, for this season so far... Alexei beat me for Stranger Strangeland, and you've won for this one, and I won for the first one. So, so far we've got two. Okay, you're, you're being edged out, Miss Podcast Host. Well, I will admit at this point that I haven't actually recorded the second one at Canticle for Leibowitz, so it's possible I'll tie with my guests. We'll see. We'll see. Time will tell. Yeah, we'll see if I can beat my brother or not. <laughs> I choose my cocktails purely on the aesthetic, though, so... That's very fair. I also don't mind losing because then I get to read more books, which is, you know, yeah, really what I'm here for. If anything, you're winning. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. Take but, a sip. <laughs> but okay, so Natalie, do you want to tell us a little bit about the summary of Waystation? Yes, yeah, so Waystation is the 1964 Hugo Book Award winner, mm-hmm. and it is about a man who appears to be in his late 20s named Enoch. Enoch fought in the Union for the Civil War. However, about 100 years later, he was seemingly never aged, looks about the same, and this did not go unnoticed, including by the CIA. Yes, and he lives in this little house in rural United States, just just minding his business when this book starts. And do you want to tell us a little bit about the characters that we find in this book? Yeah, so I broke this down into four main characters for our purposes today. We have Enoch, who is the Civil War veteran and our protagonist. Ulysses, who is a good friend and frequent visitor of his humble abode. Lewis, who is the CIA agent who spends a lot of time observing him and trying to crack the code about who Enoch is and why he looks so young. And lastly, Lucy, who is a neighbor of his, who is a young woman who happens to be deaf and mute. Yeah, and... The fact that we only said four characters is because this book is pretty light on characters. You mostly just spend your time with Enig. But at this point, I'm just going to say, I'm going to do the history, but then we're going to go into spoilers. So if anything that we said at this point sounds interesting to you, then this is where you can pause and go listen to the book. But yeah, so this book was written by Clifford Simak. And this is the only book that he ever wrote that won a Hugo. And that's a little bit sad because I actually would have been quite happy to read these other books. But this was published in two parts, originally under the title Here Gather the Stars, in the magazine Galaxy Science Fiction, which I think just must have been the better of the two science fiction magazines because the other one, Astounding Science Fiction, is where you get like Dianetics and shit. And- I don't know what that is, I'm sorry. The founding book of Scientology. Oh, okay. Yeah. Not a good vibe. <laughs> yes, exactly, which we talked about for fun earlier in the podcast. Okay, yeah, I'll t- tune in for that <laughs> one. 
But yeah, and also Galaxy Science Fiction published The Demolished Man and Fahrenheit 451, so it was generally, I would say, pretty good. And this one, it was published in two parts, was called Here Gathered the Stars, which I think was also a pretty good name for it. And Clifford Simak actually just seems to have been a pretty chill, kind of like nice dude, which is nice for people on this podcast. You know, he wasn't as weird as Robert Heinlein. There was no, you know, strange things going on with him trying to convince his friends to sleep with his wife. He just was, he was born in rural Wisconsin, attended the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and then was a public teacher before he decided to stop teaching and try to become a writer. And he really was fascinated with space, and he just was like a big believer in the idea that sci-fi need to be rooted in some form of theoretical actual science, which was a big idea within galaxy science fiction, that there needed to be like some idea that the stories was coming from that could be like potentially real. Like an underpinning scientific logic? Yeah, like obviously like a lot of the things that happen in this book are not possible today. But like for instance, there's something that happens in this book that's like almost like virtual reality, which obviously didn't exist in the 60s, but it's real now and it was like an idea. And also he is, even though he's not quite as well known, he is like remembered as a good science fiction author. And actually in 2003, an asteroid was named Cliff Simic after him. Yeah, nice testament to his memory. I'm sure that would make him really happy looking back. Yeah, I mean, he really, he did write short stories more often. And I do think that sort of shows in this book. But I liked him as a writer. Yeah, I think that definitely shows in the structure, which we'll delve into a little bit later. But I can also see like it being fractured by nature of being published in two parts for a magazine. Yeah, well, that's pretty common of sci-fi from this time period. There's only a few things that it doesn't really show that they're fractured, so... That's kind of interesting. But the thing that is interesting historically of this book outside of the author is it's published in 1963, right? And the Cold War-esqueness of the background of it is a really big plot point. So at this point, now that we're getting to spoiler territory, what you do see in this book is that... Enik, the reason why he never ages is because he runs a way station for aliens. And a whole plot point is that he has learned, like, magical alien, like, logic and mathematics. And using this, he's, like, worked it all out that basically there's, like, no way that humans don't destroy themselves. And so he's, like, basically, like, trying to find a way to stop humans from killing each other. And it's like, hmm. This was written in the 60s. I wonder what the author was thinking about. Yeah, well, I think when I was reading this, I was particularly thinking about that this was probably written right before, if not during, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that's, like, I think sometimes considered the closest humanity came to the brink of nuclear destruction. Okay, yeah, 62. I thought it was 63. So, yeah, he was definitely thinking about that, I assume, at least while writing the second part. Well, I mean, this book came out in June 1963, so it's like, yeah, and he almost certainly, while he was writing it, was influenced by that. Which I can kind of see because it sort of like really sharply delves into that later in the book. And I wonder if maybe it was like, oh, I wonder if this is what we should be talking about. Oh no, definitely. I think that this piece of literature or scientific book, whatever... I don't know if it's too stuffy to say piece of literature. Sorry, I read a lot of political theory for context, so I was kind of (laughs) reading it coming out of that, thinking about what these people think about humanity and stuff like that. But 
you can definitely tell that this is a discrete product of the historical period in which he was writing, in which he was thinking, in which he was observing, in which the author was living, which is really fascinating as, you know, two people who study history. Yeah, exactly. It's always really interesting when you can so obviously tell, like, like, even if you had given me this piece of fiction and I hadn't known it was from the 1960s, I would have known it was from the 1960s, right? And I think he would have been able to tell too. Oh yeah, definitely. But it also really helps the fact that they're like 100 years after the Civil War. I'm like, yep, I can do that math. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because that's why people are starting to get suspicious of him since he ages when he leaves the way station, but he only leaves for like 10 minutes every day. Well, an interesting tension that I thought is the fact that I think Enik generally seems like a pretty low-key kind of guy, not super high maintenance. He likes the simple things in lives, like his, I think he reads a lot of scientific journals, and mm-hmm. he likes his eggs, bacon, and coffee every morning. But the fact that every day he goes out in public, having not aged, and goes on a walk where anybody can see him to meet his friend who's a mailman, like he just completely does not care about the fact that he's not aging and that's something that the first chapter touches on too is essentially everybody knows it but they're going to keep to themselves about it which i thought was interesting yeah well so i think it's one of these things that he's in the book living in a very rural place and i think it's kind of like this idea that he's just kind of like become a folk legend among the people and one of the interesting things that the book is it's actually considered like a subgenre of sci-fi, which I didn't know existed until I read this book, called Pastoral Science Fiction. This is like, ah, rural stuff. You said it was like, what, cottagecore? Yeah, I think that any of the cottagecore girlies out there would definitely completely envy the nightlife that Enik was living. Yeah, well, it's just like, I live on my farm, I go meet my friend the mailman, I give him some wood every day, I... Actual blocks of wood. That's not a euphemism. He gives him actual blocks of wood. He bakes a lot of bread, I'm sure. He, I'm sure he goes and picks flowers. He goes and sits by the babbling brook. He walks through the woods. Like, this is yeah. the life. He's, he lives on a farm. He's got, like, a very little plot of the farm that he uses still. And it's like, you know, it's very chill. Yeah. And basically, this uh, CIA agent is the first person to ever take interest in him, which I thought was very interesting. I was a little bit disappointed that we didn't get more of the CIA agent because I really wanted him to be like trying to solve the mystery. Yeah, we know nothing about him, which it would be interesting to understand why is he personally so interested in it? Because what we find out was that it seems like he went to a lot of lengths because I think he, how, I don't know, I don't remember off the top of my head how long he lived there, but he we made a point months. of developing a persona as like a ginseng hunter. Yeah. And like ingratiating himself to the local, what were they, the, the Fisher family? Yes. They're just like this local family that lives there that are basically like ne'er-do-wells that just kind of like do all sorts of like basically like they like fish, they like steal, they just sort of like. Well, something I found really interesting about how Simic describes the Fishers is he's kind of like essentially calling them like lower class rural people mm-hmm. whereas the family of Enik is like high class they own a farm whereas the fishers they make moonshine and mm-hmm. they hunt raccoons and and they're like kind of the bad guys and it is kind of interesting i hadn't really thought about that but it's like i wonder since he comes from rural wisconsin if he comes from like a better family you know an upper class family that goes to college and knows literature and as opposed because like I don't know. I, he, he describes the Fishers as, like, very bad, 
But like for the most, for the first part of the book, I don't really think, I don't know, they're just kind of like people doing their thing. It doesn't really seem like they're a problem. Though, I guess there is a thing later in the book. <laughs> yeah, should we start by talking about the most notable Fisher character? Yeah, well the most notable Fisher character is Lucy. And... As Nat mentioned, she is mute and she is deaf. And there's this kind of weird scene where she's just like hanging out looking at the world and Eddie just like comes up behind her. And it feels, I don't know. Well, the weird thing to me is they he repeatedly kind of compares her to a child. But there's this really voyeuristic scene in which we're introduced to her where he very much like talks about her as like being beautiful and delicate and it just made me really uncomfortable because reading this i wanted to think that she was like in her early 20s mm-hmm. but repeatedly re- comparing her to a child with her cat for instance in one scene um that made me pretty uncomfortable i don't really yeah, know and we don't really know how old she is and also i don't know i just feel like if you can't hear i feel like it'd be very scary to have someone come up behind you no, exactly. And I think they do kind of try to explain that they tried to put her through, like, the educational resources that were available to her to make her life easier so she could communicate. But this whole thing about, like, she rejected them and she didn't want to learn signing and stuff like that, which I thought was a little weird. And they don't really develop her that much further. She's just kind of like this perfect, sweet young woman slash little girl. We don't quite know. Yeah, we don't know how old she is. It's basically just, like, she is perfect because she, like, lives in her own, like, world outside of humans because she didn't really understand and therefore is, like, not touched by the ugliness of the world. Yeah, well, I guess maybe we can say that, like, the Fisher family is almost, like, a microcosm for what I think Simic would probably call like the quote-unquote barbarity of humanity. And if anything, Lucy is just spared of that because of her inability to communicate with her family. Yeah, and that's why, like, a spoiler is that at the end, so one of the things throughout this book is that the galactic society that he has a way station for, they've, like, lost their, like, beacon of good that was making the world better. And, it, and at the end, through very random wayward means, this beacon shows up on Earth, and they're like, well, it's not going to work again until it finds a new bearer. And they're like, ah, Lucy is the bearer, because she's so good, she's so pure, it lights up when it's around her. So it's like this weird, like, ah, yes, because she wasn't able to communicate or be part of humanity, she's better than humanity? But there's no way because is it okay that I talk about like the abuse scene? Oh yeah. There's a scene where we're, it very clearly and explicitly is established to the reader that Lucy was at one point abused by her father. We don't know if this is a like repetitive thing or if it's a one-off, but she was essentially whipped by her father when it's... she tried to prevent violence. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like it seems like something in the ra- realm had happened before. I found it very unconvincing that she would be this perfect little beacon of light and hope and goodwill of humanity if she comes from such a horrible home where she's also an outsider and treated so horribly yeah i mean she's attacked and she she doesn't have anything that she can do and the reason why we hear about this one scene is because in that scene she runs to enik because presumably she thinks her like dad is going to kill her but that might have happened before she like knew enik or before she like felt safe to run to him it could have been like you just like kicked her in the house so it's like, yeah, it's not like her life has been like so like nice and pure and butterflies. No, exactly. I didn't really enjoy the whole she's special, she heals butterflies kind of angle. I found it, I don't know, I didn't think it was very well explained. I would have liked further characterization for her. But to be honest, I don't think this is like a gendered thing. I think that generally we don't really know a lot about any of the characters. I would personally say Enik included. 
Yeah, it kind of is just like, we on a farm, he's farm boy, discuss. No, exactly. He's, like, once again, kind of held up as like this perfect beacon of humanity. He's an exemplar. Mm-hmm. He just seeks to understand those around him, including alien species, mind you. Or like the deaf girl, which he also likens to an alien at one point, which I wrote down because I thought that was really weird. Yeah, she's not an alien. She's just... It also... I don't know. It makes this point that oh, like she like rejected sign language, but I can't help wondering if maybe her family just like didn't really try it because, like, it takes like a lot of effort and time to help someone with something like that, and nothing about her family indicates that they would really work with her on it. No, exactly. I feel like for okay, this book was like what two hundred twenty-five written pages, mm-hmm. and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it more than I thought it would. No offense, <laughs> as somebody who's not an avid reader of sci-fi. And I enjoyed the little snippets, the descriptions mm-hmm. of nature, which I thought were beautiful. But I feel like out of a 225 book, I feel like I don't really know any of the characters. And there's not that many. So it's kind of weird. But it's very, we were talking about this earlier. It's very slice of life. It's very much like, ah, Inuk w- wakes up. What is he going to eat for breakfast? What alien is going to pass through his way station today? Is he going to be a blob? Is it going to be this alien that knows mathematics? You know? I think the best way actually to describe Enig is he's like the Stardew Valley main character <laughs> that has no personality whatsoever. Yeah, he's everybody just, loves them, of course. He's just being imprinted upon. That's actually a great, great thing. Yeah, he's totally the main character Stardew Valley because it's just like he's just like there, and then people come and teach him things and give him gifts. And the most interesting thing about him is like what aliens have taught him, right? Oh no, exactly. And I think he seems like a nice enough guy, and I think he seems like relatively virtuous and i think that he seems to like have a lot of introspection which makes Mm -hmm. him probably a more interesting protagonist than i would have expected but yeah well i think this i really think that what clifford semek is trying to say in this book is what humanity needs to do to avoid blowing itself up and i think in his mind enik isn't so much a character as he is a goal you know He's kind of saying, would could we be all so peaceful, so contented with this little life, so open to learning new things, so open to new species, so fully just concerned with others without considering. Like the only things that Enoch really does in this book where he really takes things into his own hands is when he protects Lucy, um, regardless of the consequences. So slight thing, but it's um, sub point, but it's important. His house... Um, has been changed to this way station, so it's impenetrable. Yeah, it's a fortress. So he brings Lucy into this house knowing that, one, she's going to see the alien technology, and that, two, her dad's going to try to get in and not be able to get in, and they're going to know it's weird. But he does that regardless of the consequences because he's not really a person with a personality. He is the embodiment of a good selfless human. But counterpoint, he does keep on reassuring the aliens who do encounter her while she's there that they don't have to worry about her because she can't communicate. Yes, but I think he does that because he doesn't want anyone to hurt her. Okay, yeah, that's a good point. Is it okay if I add some textual evidence to your discussion about, yeah. like, humanity? So I found this this quote really stuck out to me, and I think it's while Enik is talking to his friend, the mailman. Mm-hmm. And I believe the mailman said... Um, 
If some nations would only take a lesson from some small neighborhoods like ours, a lesson on how to get along, the whole world would be a whole lot better. And I think that's like the most explicitly like politically prescriptive part of the book. Yeah. At least the part that I wrote down. That's on page 49 for people who have the same copy as me. Chapter mm-hmm. 8. But I will note that, no, I guess, I don't want to say this is necessarily a bad thing, but like in the book's defense, and like a few weeks ago... I read Starship Trooper with my friend Sam, right? And we really talked in that episode about how Starship Trooper is just a book with a point. The only thing Starship Trooper is trying to tell you is that you will be happy if you join the military. And if you truly care about your country, you're going to do it, right? Like, that's the only thing that book is about. This book has a point, and the point is like, we should get along. Love your neighbor. Be like a nice human, and you'll be happier. And that like definitely like is a message, but the message isn't the entire book. It's got other stuff going on that's fun. You'd agree with that, right? I'd agree with that. I think it also generally has a pretty jaded outlook on the fate of humanity and humanity's capacity for reason. One passage that I found really, really to be a bummer was the whole one where I forget who Anik is talking to, but he's like, oh, what could we do so that human like that humans are not seen as completely warlike? And not a threat to, like, the galactic balance, I guess, is how you could put it. Yeah, he's and, talking with Ulysses. Yeah, and Ulysses essentially responds, like, oh, who, for context, we didn't say this before, is an alien mm-hmm. who just stops by to hang out, and I guess while he's traveling. Ulysses says that you'd essentially have to reduce humans to a point of low intelligence where they no longer understand, like, what weapons are, how to hurt each other, and that's the one way that humanity will never no longer be seen as a threat by others. And I thought that was really depressing. Yeah, so I'll just briefly explain who Ulysses is, since Natalie mentioned him, but didn't really want to get into it because you didn't want to spoil in the summary. So Ulysses is this alien that comes from this species that has, like, these terrible-looking faces with, like, these upwards, like, curved mouths, you know, like, basically, like, think, like, kind of Joker-esque, right? Yeah, Heath Ledger Joker is what I was imagining. Yeah, kind of, but very nice. And he finds Ulysses, Ulysses finds Enoch at the end of the Civil War. And is like, you've always looked at the stars, right? And your parents are dead, so you own a farm by yourself. Want to start an alien way station? And then like comes and visits every once in a while. And he really, it's not really clear why, but he really is the alien that has faith in Enoch, I guess. And he's just this sort of like, vague like guiding figure throughout the book that doesn't really do much but it's just sort of like there to be helpful with that in mind should we touch on the interesting cast of aliens that we get to meet throughout it yeah we get to see a lot of aliens which is i don't know i think the most interesting parts of enoch are when he's talking to aliens when he's like oh this cool alien technology i found so first he has like ulysses people and then the main ones that we see other than that are there's this dude who visits him who's a blob just like a blob who's just hanging out. I imagine a blobfish just hanging out. Yeah, just sitting in a tube in his place. Yeah, so this book has this idea that the way that you travel in the galaxy basically is that you don't bring your body from place to place, that you like transfer your mind and there's a machine there that makes a new form of your body and you can only go so far as a distance. So if people want to go to that quadrant, then, like, Earth is one of the places they pass through. So he gets all sorts of random visitors. And the ones that are most important to the book and are 
most explained are the vegans. I found that part so funny. The vegans are, he also calls them the hazers because he likes giving little nicknames to the aliens as part of, like, I think in his, his mind to reconnect himself to humanity since nicknames are such a common practice for humans. Yeah, well, for instance, Ulysses doesn't actually have a name. So he calls him Ulysses because, you know, civil war. And he's like, oh, what could I name him? I'll name him after everyone's favorite general, Ulysses Grant. Not my favorite general. Ulysses was kind of awful. But that's that's Enoch's opinion. I don't know. What do you think? Are you going to defend Ulysses? I think Ulysses as a character was interesting, but I agree with your assessments roughly of Ulysses <laughs> as Grant. He killed a lot of people, let's be real, folks. But then the vegans... I don't know. I Natalie didn't say that she described this way, but I kind of imagine them as sort of like the Lorax. There's these there's these little people that kind of have a little bit of smell that look a little funky that really love picnics that show up and like eat and are like, yay, humans, we're so exciting. And they really feature in like the actual plot of the book, which this is something I will say about this book that doesn't really start until like a hundred pages in. But basically one of them dies while he's on Earth and Enoch buries him. And then the CIA agent digs up and steals the body. As you do when you're in the CIA. I think that, you know, timely critique of the CIA given the historical period. He's yeah. ahead of his time. <laughs> exactly. We don't like the CIA either. But, um, and then the Alien Galactic Council wants to basically bar humans forever because they stole this body. Yeah, and there's this interesting tension for Enoch because I think he's simultaneously... As I probably said before, very jaded about humanity's prospects and their capacity for kindness and reason. But he also seems really, really distraught at the prospect of Earth being stripped of its way station status, which I think was really interesting because he wanted Earth to have that connection, and that place in the galaxy, that kind of reverence. Yeah, well, there's this interesting part where Ulysses basically tells him that Earth is going to be basically forever lose a chance to get status and basically Enoch's only choices are leave the way station and live on earth and grow old or join um the galaxy and go to a different planet to run the way station and he decides that he's gonna stay and starts like transferring like secretly all of his most important texts <laughs> and <laughs> we're laughing because Julian has fallen asleep and uh, he's like, he's very loyal to humanity, which is why, again, I maintain my argument that he is not a character. He is the goal of what Clifford Simic thinks the perfect human would be. Yeah, I think he's kind of supposed to be an exemplar for his readers. Yeah. I know that you also said you wanted to talk about the strange pacing, right? Yeah, well, like I said, the plot starts 100 pages in. Yeah, I think at about the 100-page mark, you find out about the desecration of the vegan grave. And that's when you first have the encounter where Lucy comes in and um, with the, like, wounds all over her from being whipped by her father. Yeah, and suddenly you're like, okay, things are going down. Because the first part of the book is, like, there's a CIA agent that you think that's going to be, like, a whole plot point. But then he just kind of, like, disappears. And when he shows up again, he just, like, agrees to basically everything Enoch says. And it's like, it's a little bit weird, but okay. And then after that, you get um, just like, there's the whole part where Lucy's like, surprise, I am the ruler of this beacon. 
And there's also this, like, weird rat alien that just suddenly shows up. Yeah, I was really confused. Because, to be honest, I was trying to get through this book somewhat quickly so that I wasn't holding up our recording much longer. But, yeah, I was really confused because it's essentially, like, out of nowhere, this rat appears from the portal after his shooting practice. And what we know is that there were already the concurrent issues of Luz having to return the body of the alien that the CIA Mm -hmm. took from a grave. And the mob, which was upset with Enik because Lucy's father was going around and telling people that Enik basically abducted Lucy. So there's these two concurrent issues, and Enik is concerned because he doesn't want the masses who are already very upset with him to see Lewis returning the body. And then on top of the, they add the rat in, and then that's all resolved in like four chapters at the end. Yeah, well, at the end, it's suddenly like, no problem. I brought Lucy back to my family, everything fine. Or her family, sorry. No problem. He brought back the body when that one was looking. No problem. I solved the mob. And it's like, because what happens is that Lucy comes back with the beacon and everyone in the mob is just filled with such overwhelming love that they just turn around and go home. And it's like, that's a bit random. Yeah, and then on top of it, Lewis, who I thought was supposed to be the antagonist the whole time, even though apparently it's this rat alien that comes out of nowhere that has apparently horrible farts. According to Enik. He's yeah. a stinky boy. <laughs> it This is, like, brought up, like, two times in, no. like, the five pages we see this alien. No, I was just so confused why there's no payoff whatsoever for Lewis, because I thought Lewis was going to be this big bad. I thought, like, the institution of the CIA. But then at the end, Lewis is like, I talked with Enik. Enik seems fine. I'm sorry. I'm just going to do whatever this boy says. And it's like, Enik doesn't give Lewis any explanation. They just meet, and Enix like, you need to do what I'm saying or else. And Lewis is like, okay. And it's like, why? Why are you doing what he says? There's yeah. no explanation. It went from this point of being like, oh, Lewis can't even know that what he got from the grave is an alien body. He mm-hmm. highly suspects it. We all know that. But Enix won't say it. To a three-way conversation between Enix, Ulysses, an alien, and Lewis, and they're all just fine, and they're all having civil conversation about how Lu- Lucy should become like uh, basically ambassador for earth to aliens and i'm like okay that does not connect there's definitely a missing chapter or something i didn't read well lewis just like accepts it so calmly and that's why it's like man i wish we knew more about lewis like did he see an alien as a child has he always suspected is that why you know there's got to be some background where he's like ah yes aliens scary clown alien that seems normal ambassador to galactic confederation sure and also why was the cia agent chasing this guy for three months did someone else in the agency care and tell him and give him this mission did he just like really feel it on himself if so why there's no background context yeah i think generally i enjoyed the beginning a lot because it's 100 pages of basically like cottagecore aliens but then Like, the last, like, 130 pages, he has to jam this, like, somewhat complex plot and, like, four characters that I'd like to know a lot more about in. I think it just feels like this book is, like, 200 pages, and I think he could have maintained the same plot and made it, like, 500 pages. Because I would have loved to know, it's like, what would I love to know they didn't have? Inic background. A little bit more about his family. What did he do in the war? You know, why is he so peaceful? What has he found here? Ulysses, a little bit more about his race. Why does he trust Anik? We don't really have a good answer to that. What exactly gives Lucy magical healing power? 
Wars? Question mark? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think... Okay, well, you just watched Twilight for the first time. I think she kind of falls into like the, a prototype of the Bella Swan exceptional, unassuming woman. And also there's the added archetype of like a man who's over 100 years old creeping on a young woman. Exactly. So. Twilight is based on this. You know? You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Watch out, <laughs> Stephanie Myers. Yes, exactly. She read this and she was like, ooh, pretty girl with magical powers, random 100-year-old man, like, creeping on her and jumping up behind her. I know what this could be. Sexy vampires. Yes, exactly. But yeah, I don't know. There's just so much, so much context that we're lacking. But in addition to aliens in this book, we also get lots of fun alien technology, which that I liked. That's a lot of the beginning cottage core stuff, and we get just like, ooh, this like devices make all sorts of fun things happen, and one of the devices makes probably the most problematic part of the book happen, and that's he has this device from this specific race that can make like shadow people. I don't know how else he would call them. I don't know. I kind of. Well, obviously, we are in the age of the issue of ChatGPT, especially as students. So I was really thinking of it as being like a materialized version of ChatGPT because I think she literally, Mary, who's one of the characters, I guess that you can say, mm-hmm. then I cooked up who he has visited him, literally said like, oh, the more that you use me, the more lifelike I get, the more real I get. I'm getting to a point, I think she says where she's essentially feeling her own emotions she was in love with, which is interesting to say the least um the comparison i made is for those of you who like greek mythology kind of reminded me of the myth of pygmalion the man mm-hmm. who builds an own statue because he's jaded about like the status of women and their virtue and their womanliness i guess you could say and then he falls in love with the statue because it's perfect of course because it's a statue and then the statue comes to life because aphrodite looked down fondly upon him so it just kind of gave that weird like power dynamic of the creator and the piece of art yeah and it's like so he makes a few of these shadow people and one of them like looks and is basically an incarnation of one of his friends from the war it's like okay i can understand that you know you lost your bud you want to make him like if i could make shadow people and one of my friends had died i would consider that and then one of them is just like a compilation of all the women he's ever thought were sexy and that's a little bit weirder. I think generally, like, I don't think any of the characters in this personally, to my liking, are well-developed enough, including the main character, which is a little concerning, even though, again, I did enjoy the book. But I think, like, that also applies to the, women char- the female characters. We have this issue with Lucy. We don't really know what her deal is, what's going on with her. We obviously never get anything from her perspective, even though this is all written in third person. And we don't really know what's going on with Mary. And it's just kind of like this watered-down version of, like, it was this high school sweetheart and the idea of a southern belle put into one body. Yeah, and it's just, I don't know. I just think it's very, like, I do think the chat GPT is a good idea. And it's like, she is AI to some extent. But I just think it's very weird, this, like, idea of, yes, I'm going to make this woman out of air that I can flirt with. And it's kind of like, mm, that's a bit uncomfy. I don't know. Yeah, and there's also this whole interesting idea also of she's able to kind of have her own sense of free will and she'll come and visit him when she wants. And I don't know, it felt 
Oh, another good comparison is um, Blade Runner 2049 with Anna de Armas' mm. character. Um, I don't remember what her character is, but like Ryan Gosling's fake AI girlfriend in that, who's also a hologram. It's actually yeah. perfect. I'm proud of that. Another sci-fi <laughs> movie I like. Yeah, Blade Runner is awesome. And basically he has this hologram girlfriend who comes to visit him and is like, I love you. I believe you're special. But it's interesting because he like realizes at the end that she like says that to basically like everyone. Yeah, because she's like basically a chip that you can buy. So this, oh, her name's Joy. This like yeah. Joy who all the loneliest sad men in the city are buying are all being told that they're special by her and being made their meals that they like and so on and so on and having the perfect girlfriend. And it's like Mary is, you know, the most basic name you could possibly have, right? And Mary is basically, you know, the 1860s Joy. She is just this, oh, yes, I'll be whatever you want to be. But then her and her friend, they become too real and they leave and they feel bad. And we've got that very weird last chapter of this book. (laughs) I was still very confused about that because I went back and read it twice I found your explanation to be pretty satisfactory if you want to share it. Yeah, well, it's not, it's really not clear. And it's really not written well enough. But after they've, like, solved, like, all the problems, because once Lucy becomes the bearer of this, like, magical totem of goodwill. Yeah, the talisman. Yeah, then that means that humans are going to, of course, be forgiven their violence. Of course, be automatically put into this galactic union. He's like, yep, everything is perfect. And even though, at that point, even though Mary and her friend have said, we're never going to come back to visit you, Mary appears because she knows that he's lonely. And this other artifact that he got from an alien race activates. And that artifact makes dreams come true. And it turns Mary into a real girl, basically. You know, she's as real as Enoch wants her to be. It's very Pinocchio. Yeah, but she basically says, and I thought this was really interesting, and I actually kind of liked it. It was a weird chapter to end on, but I liked it as the end of Mary's story. She basically is like, look, that thing made me real, that's true. But also, you're never going to think of me as real. You're always going to think of me as the perfect girlfriend that you created, and I don't want to be that, so I'm going to leave. And then she's like, bye, I am never coming back no matter what, and destroys herself. She destroys the artifact that was given by the aliens. Yes, and so destroying that artifact, she guarantees that she's never going to return. And I thought that was very interesting, and I thought that was kind of like more agency than women are usually given in ancient sci-fi. Well, there also was a thing where um, when Lucy was appointed, I guess, the Goodwill Ambassador for the Galactic Union or whatever. Sorry, I don't remember the name off the top of my head. And I think there's a thing where Lewis is like, oh, does she need permission? Then Enik is like, no, she's her own woman. She can choose for herself. And I was like, okay, Enik. Yeah, so it's like, for the sci-fi of the time, female representation is excellent, actually. Because there are some female characters, they may not have personality, but they do their own thing, and the men approve. So, yeah, they get some respect. Well, it's like... We got Stranger in Strange Land before this, and we got Moon as a Harsh Mistress after this. And in both of those things, we see women, and they're like, ooh, I'm a woman. I see a man. That looks like man. Let's make out with him. Let's have sex with him. And the women in this are like, not like that. So, better. 
Yeah, there was not one single uncomfortable sex scene, which I'm very lucky that I got that book because I did not want to discuss that here. But yeah, I had to. Uh, tune in for The Wanderer if you like random sex scenes, folks. I thought it would also be interesting, I've kind of touched on this a little bit, to talk mm-hmm. about some of the things that reminded us of this book. One thing I was thinking about, and I haven't read this in forever, so don't ask me to summarize it, is Tuck Everlasting. Is when mm. I first, like, I think when I was, like, three chapters in, I was like, oh my gosh, this is sci-fi, Tuck Everlasting. Which, Tuck Everlasting, I have not read since high school, but the basic thing is, is there's this woman, and she's wandering through the woods, and she finds a sexy man in the woods, as we all dream, and she's like, ooh, sexy man. I'm gonna marry a sexy man and join his family. But then she discovers that sexy man is part of a family of people who never die and if they take this certain water they'll live forever and in that book she decides that she's going to go back so maybe that's also what twilight is based on maybe this is all about what twilight is based on i think that all roads lead to twilight if we're going to talk about the female version of the roman empire yes exactly they're all men, everything they talk about leads to the Roman Empire, and everything that women talk about leads to Twilight, so. As it should. Yes, of course. Twilight is actually the most important piece of literature ever written in the Western canon. Can I choose for you to talk about that on the podcast? Yeah, we can, I mean, we can talk about Twilight, sure. Uh, it's not really, uh, it's not really sci-fi, but you know what, sure, I'll talk about Twilight. Oh no, um, I'm <laughs> sure we can... Find some tenuous sci-fi guys. Oh, Julian just rolled over. Very tenuous, yes. You look so sleepy. This podcast is about the sci-fi book, but it is also a, um, a live cam of what Julian looks like when he's half asleep, since he is rolling back and forth on my couch. Very important. Writhing. Yes. Well, I hope he's not writhing. That sounds like he's in pain. But yeah, and then leaving julian behind one of the other things that we thought that this kind of remind natalie of in the first time that asked this i was like oh yeah fuck it's exactly like men in black it's it feels really like ah there's these men running around and they understand aliens and no one else does oh yeah like a lot of the i don't remember what the governmental organization for men in black is but let's just call it like alien central intelligence administration or something like that Mm -hmm. um the acia is founded on a mutual respect between humans and aliens and the understanding that aliens will kind of like stop in on Earth on their way there or even kind of immigrate to Earth. And it was very much like that, like this idea of peaceful coexistence and cooperation with aliens. I guess Enoch was the original Will Smith, you could say. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of interesting because I feel like very few people in the modern day have heard of Waystation. You know, like this book came out around Dune. And of course, everyone knows what Dune is. We'll be doing that in a few weeks, but no one has ever heard of this. But I would say it's a very good book, and so I can't help wondering, like, who has drawn on it? Okay, so what are the things that you would keep in the book most, and what would you ask in the book or fix? Okay, so if I was writing this book, hmm, I think I like Lewis, I like the idea, but if this was my book, if I was that smart, I think I would go back and forth between chapters, between Lewis and Enoch and I would make Lewis's chapters like Lewis getting closer and closer to figuring out the truth you know Lewis tells us that he's been there for like three months I'd love that to actually be specific and then I would make every other chapter just like Enoch being a little bit weirded out by things but being like oh I'm just living my life and like more slice of life being like oh this different alien came by this different alien came by that sort of thing 
And then at the end of it, I would make it like, I probably, if I was writing this modern day, I'd probably kind of have stuff about like, oh, it's an apocalypse and that sort of thing. And what I would add in is like, there's this plot about like the vegan being stolen, which I think I would give us more from the point of view of the CIA agent stealing him. And then I would have Enoch trying to figure out where he went. And also that is what will decide if humans get accepted into the galactic like union or not. And so if he does that, then he gets it. And I think it would have been more interesting if the CIA agent couldn't easily bring that guy back and he had to like leave with the CIA agent and like go and try to find this body. And if they bring them back, then humans get to join this galactic union. And if they don't find it, then it doesn't happen. More like, I don't know, sci-fi thriller with the slice of life at the beginning. What do you think? I really enjoyed the world building aspect of it. I think that that is by far, or like the slice of life slash world building parts, that is by far the strongest aspect of this. But what I think instead of having this essential world building slice of life dump for the first 100 pages is actually have it interspersed. I kind of disagree with you. And I think generally, I really like the slice of life stuff. Don't get rid of that. But I think that what you need to do also is, if anything, make it longer to add more space for development of Enoch in particular. Mm. Because he's the main character, and I still feel like I don't know him at all as a character. Well, like I said, he's not a character, he's an aspiration. He's kind of like a Nick Carraway sort of guy. Like, he's... I don't know. It's not like we have more interesting characters that we're studying, to be honest. But I'd like more from him and everyone. Though, I will say, Natalie hasn't read them all, so she doesn't know... But in if you're considering books of sci-fi in the 60s, it's good for character development for things you get there. And that is a really sad statement in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I'm excited for the 70s, folks. That's what I'll say. You know, you got Dune. You still got Dune coming up. That, that has some good character development, but that's basically it. I do want to say this before we end off. And this is a big point in terms of this book. So we have the books by Robert Highland, right? Robert Highland wrote like Starship Troopers in like three weeks. And the prose in Starship Troopers is awful. It's like this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And that's literally how he writes his sentences. There's no beauty to them. Clifford Sinek, he is a beautiful writer. Oh yeah, I think that if you really are interested in what his writing is like, pay attention to like the first maybe four chapters. And there's these beautiful, again, pastoral scenes where it's just talking about Enoch walking through the forest and he's walking by like a little river and it's really beautiful the way he describes nature you can tell that i think i read his wikipedia page he Mm -hmm. loves fishing you can tell he's definitely the kind of guy who would spend a lot of time in the middle of nowhere fishing and enjoying the environment around him yeah exactly and it's just there's not a lot of early sci-fi with good prose so i did really appreciate that that made it really easy to get through but is there anything else you want to talk about before we end I don't really have anything in particular in mind. Okay, so the final question is, would you recommend this book? I think for people who are wary of sci-fi, like me, or sci-fi literature, I guess you could say, but really enjoy Cottagecore, go for it. You will not be disappointed. I would. I think that for all of the lacking in this book's like plot and recommending characters, or like clear characters, I think that... Not only is the prose nice, but I think you get a lot of really interesting, cool aliens. I think you get a lot of really interesting, cool alien tech, which we didn't talk about all of that because a lot of it just like isn't relevant to the plot. There's just like a section where he basically goes through his like alien cabinet of curiosities and he's like, oh yeah, 
this item is interesting. I got it from Miss Aliens. It does this. And it's like, that's kind of cool. So I think for that, I would recommend it. Yeah. I think I would say it is the third book of the 60s. And I think basically everything beyond this really falls in stature. But this Canticle for Leibowitz and Dune are definitely the best three. I'll have to take your word on that, but thank you for inviting me on, Catherine. I actually did enjoy this book a lot more than I thought I would. Yeah, I mean, read your 60s sci-fi, folks. It's it's better than you think. But yeah, anyways, so bye. And see you guys next time. <laughs>